Good morning. Good to see you here today. Thank you, Christy. Wonderful job. Take your Bibles, turn again, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and verse number 36. How many of you have your sleep interrupted last night by storm warnings? At least four times that I can remember, my phone gave me an indication that there was a flood warning. In fact, I live on top of a hill. I wasn't too concerned about that. However, you hate to turn it off because you think the next one might be a, a real storm warning. So I know that you have interrupted sleep this morning. So I'll look over it if you go to sleep on me. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We have before us this morning a record of a woman who falls at the feet of Jesus in worship. We are not told her name. Luke does not record a single word spoken by this woman in her sacrificial act of worship. Worship without words, now that's a thought. But her worship was so profound that Jesus uses her an example to a very proud religious leader. Now let me say by way of introduction that each of the Gospels has an account of the washing of Jesus' feet by a woman. The accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and John all deal with the same incident. But the one that is recorded here in our text in Luke seems to be a unique incident. There are three central characters in our story this morning, and we're going to examine them first. First, there is the Pharisee. It says, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now, Jesus is invited for a meal into the home of a religious leader, a Pharisee, by the name of Simon. We don't really know what prompted this invitation. Whatever his motivation, he does seem to have to do so with a thinly concealed animosity because he does not extend to Jesus even the common courtesies given to an honored guest. Common courtesy for the day would have been as soon as Jesus entered the house of Simon, he would have been greeted with a kiss. He would have had water available to wash his feet and his head would have been anointed with oil. Simon seems to have purposefully omitted these common courtesies that would have been extended to any honored guest. Simon treated Jesus with practiced, cold contempt. He carefully avoided every custom that would have made Jesus feel welcome. And you can't help but think that all of the guests noticed it as well. He had God at his dinner table. And he treated him with contempt. The second character is the prostitute, verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of a fragrant oil. Our English translation does not convey the shock that the entrance of this woman made when it says, and behold, a woman. It is literally, and look, a woman. 
The prize, the shock was primarily because of this woman's reputation. The text tells us that she was a sinner. And that was not just somebody's bigoted opinion, but rather a statement of fact. The context and the original language of of our text suggests that she is either a prostitute or she, at the very least, was a woman with a considerable notoriety. Now, Luke does not tell us, but it seems safe to assume that this woman has at some point in the past come under the teaching of Jesus. Somewhere in the past, it would seem, that this woman had crossed paths with Jesus and she had found the forgiveness that she so desperately needed. When she hears that Jesus is nearby, she determines to show her gratitude. I believe that her actions are motivated by gratitude. And that the words of Jesus that we see in verses 48 and 50 are words of assurance of forgiveness already granted. When she sees Jesus and when her eyes finally rest on him, the other guests fade into a mist of tears. It suddenly doesn't matter what these respectable people think about her. All she sees is Jesus. In verse 38 it says, And she stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. You have to keep in mind that the the custom in the Near East at that time was that people did not sit at a table. They reclined at the table. They sat, reclined on their left elbow with with a pillow at their head, and their feet extended out behind them. This woman knelt at the feet of Jesus with the perfume that she had brought with the purpose of anointing his feet. Then an unexpected complication arose. She was weeping so uncontrollably that her tears began to follow, fall on the feet of Jesus. No doubt embarrassed, she searches desperately for something to wipe the feet of Jesus. But he did not come prepared for that eventuality. Mortified that her tears have fallen on the feet of Jesus, she does the only thing that she can, the only thing that is available to her. She let down her long hair and she began to dry his feet. I can't tell you how shocking that was in that society. A woman never let her hair down in public. That was something that was only done in private with her husband. But the more that she wipes with her hair, the more tears that fall. She uses the water of her tears to wash his feet, something that she could have hardly planned in advance. She began to kiss his feet. In fact, the text uses a verb form which means to kiss again and again and again. She repeatedly kissed the feet of Jesus. Yet there is nothing erotic in what she does. This woman is a self-forgetting mess. Crying unashamedly, her nose running with weeping, her wet hair with a muddy mixture of tears and dirt. 
as the sweet fragrance of her sacrifice fills the room, anyone who had not previously been aware of what was going on now did. All eyes are on Jesus. What will he do? He doesn't appear to be either embarrassed or upset at the extravagance display of love and devotion. What she did, she did remarkably well. She worshipped. This woman's worship was at a great personal cost. It cost her monetarily the expense of this very expensive vial of perfume. It cost her the humility to kiss and wash and dry with her hair the dirty feet of our Lord. But perhaps the greatest cost that she faced was that of the scorn and rejection of these self-righteous Pharisees and dinner guests. No one had invited her. She was not wanted there. She probably would have been despised, and she might have been thrown out. But none of those things matter. Her desire to see and worship Jesus were greater than her fear. The price that she had to pay may be high, but to her, it was worth it. The third character that we see is the prophet, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon's reaction given here reveals much about the condition of his heart. In Simon's mind, he was passing judgment. Simon's reasoning went something like this. If Jesus were a prophet, he would know people's character. If Jesus knew this woman was a sinner, he would have had nothing to do with her. And if Jesus were a true teacher, he would not have allowed her to touch him this way. And the word that Simon uses in this verse to say that she is touching him is a word that's used to describe sexual activity. The word that he used suggests that this was a very inappropriate action. Now the problem with his logic it was, is that it was based on false assumptions, and it led him to false conclusions. Simon believes that if Jesus were a prophet, he would have been able to discern the character of this woman who was touching him, which was correct. There is a wonderful irony, as Luke tells us, that Jesus could read Simon's mind at the same time that Simon is doubting that Jesus is a prophet. Jesus was not only able to discern the character of this woman, he was able to know what Simon was thinking. The conclusion that Simon reached was wrong entirely. Simon thought that since Jesus did not shun this woman, he did not know this woman's character, and thus was not a prophet at all. By telling Simon those things that he only thought and had not yet spoken, he proved that he was more than a prophet. 
Now, I don't want you to miss this in verse 40. Jesus turns to Simon and he says, Simon, I have something I want to say to you. Does Jesus ever tap you on the shoulder and whisper, you and I have something to talk about? There are only two kinds of sinners in the world. And everyone here fits into the, one of those two char- characteristics, two categories. There are sinners who know they are sinners, and then there are sinners who do not know that they are sinners. What Jesus has to say are some very important principles that, has, that are as meaningful today as they were when they were spoken. So look with me last at the parable. Four things about this story. First of all, just like the two men in the story, everyone is spiritually in debt. So he said, teacher, say it. He says there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. So Jesus uses a story to explain what he meant. There were two men who had borrowed money. And since that Daenerys was equal to about a day's wages, 50 of them equaled nearly two months' pay, and 500 of them almost two years, 22 months. These were incredible debts, considering that the average wage for a person at that time was barely enough for survival. And although there is a considerable difference in what each man owed, one owes ten times as much as the other, what is important is that neither man was able to repay. If you can't repay, it doesn't matter how much you owe. It doesn't matter if the amount's $50 or $500. But the story the creditor is seen here as a man who is showing supreme mercy and compassion because he canceled each man's debt. Jesus then asked a question recorded in verse 42. Tell me, talking to Simon, therefore which of them will love him more? Now Simon seems to have hesitated to answer the question perhaps fearing that he's going to be trapped by the answer. And he finally says, I suppose. Yet there was only one correct answer, and even Simon could see what the answer was. He says, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Even in agreeing, Simon has just acknowledged, perhaps inadvertently, that he too is a debtor. Certainly the one who was forgiven ten times as much would have a greater gratitude. The higher the debt, the more the forgiveness costs the creditor. Some people that we would never think of associating with, if they truly met Christ and were changed, would display love and devotion that would put us to shame. Such people love much because they have been forgiven much. Secondly, just like the characters in the story, we can never repay the debt. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. The good news is that forgiveness is available 
to everyone. But forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness always costs something. For the lender, it cost him 550 denarii to forgive those who were indebted to him. Forgiveness always costs something. When God said, I will forgive you, it cost the life of his only son, Jesus, on the cross of Calvary. The sin debt had to be paid. Jesus paid the debt so that you and I would not have to. The conclusion is clear. Simon is a high-class sinner, but he had the same problem as the low-class prostitute. It was only a matter of degrees. The woman owed the greater debt, but they both owed a debt that they could not pay. Sometimes it's harder for those who have been saved young in life, who have grown up in church, saved from a life of prolific sin. It should cause us to stop and realize the magnitude of what Christ has done for us. It would be good for us to realize if we had not been rescued at such an early point in our lives, what we might have been. Jesus' reply in verse 43 is, you have rightly judged. Suggests that Simon is beginning, at least, to see the spiritual implications. Third, those who come to Jesus, he will not turn away. Now, Jesus does something interesting. He shifts his position. He shifts his attention, and he faces the woman giving her his attention and acceptance as he still continues to talk to Simon. Verse 42, we are told, 44, I'm sorry. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. All through the meal, Jesus' back was to the woman who was anointing and kissing his feet. He was at the same time facing his host, Simon. Now that Simon has rejected what Jesus has revealed. In contrast to the repentance and worship of this woman, Jesus now turns his back on his host, even while he is still addressing Simon. Simon had turned his back on the woman because of who she was, and now Jesus uses her as an example to show Simon who he really was. Jesus is by his very body language showing his acceptance of the woman. And he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Jesus tells Simon, this woman has done for Jesus what he had refused to do. He had purposefully omitted the common courtesies accorded to any honored guest. Jesus chose to overlook Simon's intended insult because his purpose for being there was not to judge manners but to forgive sin. What the woman does for Jesus, though, were not just simple social niceties. They were acts of repentance and worship. 
She came to Jesus in faith, expecting that he would receive her, and she was not disappointed. As she wept in repentance, I believe she could sense the Lord's forgiveness. The greater her relief from sin, the more abundant and extravagant her expression of adoration and worship began. We are never more happy than when we feel forgiven, freed of guilt, freed of debt, freed of shame. Fourth and finally, those who come to Jesus in repentance and faith will be forgiven. Jesus tells Simon in verse 47, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Some have concluded based on this very verse that she had earned her salvation or her forgiveness by her great act of love. She was not forgiven because of her great love. Her great love was evidence that she had been forgiven. To love because you're forgiven is a natural response of such undeserved action. To be forgiven because you have expressed love is works. The Jerusalem Bible brings out the meaning of Jesus' words when it says, For this reason I tell you that her sins, her many sins, must have been forgiven, or she would not have shown such great love. When Jesus, in verse 48, spoke words of assurance that she had indeed been forgiven, he said, Your sins are forgiven. He openly declared before this gathered crowd that all of her past sins had been forgiven. The truly exciting part is that what was true then is still true today. Jesus forgives all those who come to him in faith and repentance. Those that heard the statement, and your sins are forgiven, are amazed. The reaction of the guest in verse 49 is that they began to say among themselves, who is this who can forgive sins? They have rightly concluded that only God can forgive sins. They realized that Jesus was making a claim that no man could rightfully make, and that is unless he is God. Jesus will make that crystal clear in verse 50 when he says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus distinctly says that it is her faith that has saved her, not her works. What was it that this woman believed by faith? What was the substance of her faith? What did this woman believe that saved her? I think the answer is strongly implied in the text. The woman believed that if she came to Jesus as a repentant sinner, that Jesus would not send her away, and that he could and had saved her. That's what she believed, and she was right. But the question remains, what about you? Which of the two characters in our story more describes your relationship with Jesus? Are you like the calm and collected Pharisee who refuses to see himself as a sinner of any sort, and therefore in no need to come to Jesus for forgiveness? 
Or are you like this woman who can see that without Jesus, she was without hope? Who do you identify with? Clearly, it is preferable to see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And if your desire is forgiveness and restoration, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me end with this story. A woman once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed the same crime twice and that justice demanded death. But the mother said, but I didn't ask for justice. I pled for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, It would not be mercy if he deserved it. Mercy is all that I ask for. Well, then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he granted a pardon to the woman's son. All you need is mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, the ability to come into this place, your house, knowing that the truths that we read this morning in your word are still true. That what was true for this woman in great need is also true for us today. We are all debtors, spiritually debtors. We have a debt that we cannot pay. But we have a Savior who has already paid that debt when he went to the cross of Calvary not to pay for his own sin to pay but to be a substitute for us and you offer the free gift of that payment to anyone who will come to you in faith repenting of their sins and believing that you are who you said you are we pray though for those today who are here who might not know you in that personal intimate way that may not have in their lives ever stopped and ask to be forgiven of their sins and accept Jesus as their Savior. We pray that right now that they might see that need and they might even in this place at this time turn to you and ask. There are others here today who have been forgiven, but life has been difficult for them. Sometimes they've made mistakes, big mistakes. They feel unworthy of your forgiveness. Help them to understand that you are our loving Heavenly Father and that you will accept any who come to you in repentance. Help us to understand that that's the kind of Father you are. And for those of us who are saved and we want to continue to walk with you, then press on our hearts, Lord, the truth of these words and help us to be willing to share them with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?